And she said something to me that was really eye-opening. And she said, uh, Dr. Spiro, as a black woman and a mother, it is, it is something that I've thought about since my baby was born that one day he may get shot. Hi, I'm Dr. John Oden. This is Memoirs in Medicine, a podcast featuring the personal stories of healthcare professionals. And I'm Dr. David Spiro. On each episode, one healthcare worker will share a moment from their career that has profoundly affected them and provide one suggestion, no matter how big or small, for improving the practice of medicine. Through storytelling, we hope to highlight the humanity in healthcare and create a space for candid and respectful discussion. To protect patient privacy, some details may have been changed, but the stories are real. Welcome to Memoirs in Medicine. Hey everyone, this is Dr. David Spiro. I'm excited to tell a story today as part of our initial series. Today, you've just got John and I, uh, who are the co-hosts, and we're talking a little bit about one of our stories. John uh, gave an awesome, uh, we had an awesome podcast talking about his story, and I can't wait to share a little bit about this one with you all today. John? I am John Oden. I'm a pediatric endocrinologist. I am also excited about this episode. We did do some discussions about discrimination at our initial podcast, and today we're going to be talking a little bit more about white privilege, discrimination, um, and kids in an emergency room. So looking forward to that story. We have stories to tell all of us in healthcare that I don't think that I don't think folks know about. Right. And so we're providing a place and a space those stories and for us to chat about it. And those stories can be happy. They can be sad. They can be traumatic. They can be uh, inspiring. It can be anything. Yeah. So this story I'm about to share is real. Uh, We're not going to share names and or identifiers, but it really happened. And it was about two years ago where we heard that we were getting three victims of gunshot violence. They were all brothers getting a gift with their mother. Mm. And when they came in, uh, one boy had CPR in progress, which means his heart wasn't beating, and the other two were shot in various places in their body, but were still alive, and we were tending to all three at the same time mm-hmm. as a mass casualty event. And um, the child that came in in cardiac arrest, uh, unfortunately, came in dead, and we were not able to revive him. And the other two, we were resuscitating with fluids and all the different things that we do. And then I was told that the mother was in the waiting room. And John, this is one of the hardest parts of being a pediatric ER physician is giving bad news in an environment where people don't know what the, what the status is. And also, right. I don't have a prior relationship right. with any of these families. So I'm walking in, I'm sitting down, I'm introducing myself and 10 seconds later, giving bad news. So I walked into the waiting room, sat down, family was there. I introduced myself and usually I'm very transparent, very direct. And I was introduced to the mother and said, "You, your three children are here. Uh, your 18 year old child came in uh, without a heartbeat and we were not able to resuscitate him. Mm. And before I got out the other words that the other two children were alive and most likely to be saved, the mother jumped off the chair, went onto the ground, uh, started crying. Uh, it's been my experience to just let that sit, uh, even though it's so horrible to see. Mm-hmm. And then this mother, who's a hero of mine, and I don't use that word lightly, hero, 
about five minutes after she cried and uh, she got up, she settled, settled herself. And she said, uh, Dr. Spiro, how about my other two children? And I told her what the status was of those kids. Mm-hmm. And she said, uh, can you please take me to see all of my children? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which meant she wanted to see the child who, who had passed away. Right. So I walk with her slowly with the chaplain and the social worker to uh, the room where her uh, dead child lay with a cover sheet over the child's face. And she went over and she lifted up the sheet and looked at her 18-year-old and uh, uh, put the sheet back and calmly stated to everyone that uh, he just received a football scholarship and he was uh, about to start college in in half a year and uh, was looking forward to that and essentially eulogized him in front of three people sitting there. Oh, wow. And now at this point, I'm hysterically crying and uh, fully unable to compose myself for so many different reasons, one of which is that this mother was uh, so eloquent in the way she talked about her child. Right. And it's such a sad, such a sad experience. But the other is that I had an 18-year-old child in my house who is the same age and who was not dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it's hard as physicians because we tend to personalize a lot because uh, we see kids. Yeah. And you and I have kids who are now teenagers and- right heading into college or in college. And so it's hard to not personalize this. Right. You have a visceral reaction to many things that your children go through. You know, something like, you know, your kid gets pushed in the hallway and they're crying when they come home. It's just, it's an unbelievable experience to not be able to be there for them. But thinking about what this mom was going through, it it just is torturous. Unimaginable in some ways. Like it's a nightmare scenario. Right. So then I took her to see her other two children, and then I had to go through the experience of uh, composing myself and getting the team together to do what's called a debriefing. Right. This is all in the this is all in the context of an active emergency room with two with three trauma patients. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And and the other thirty patients that are sitting in the ER getting care that are not in the trauma bay. Um, so the debriefing, if you all don't know what that is, is when we, you get the entire team together and you talk about the resuscitation and talk about what went well, what are opportunities for improvement. And for the first time, I thought to myself, and I'd never done this before, nor had, I had never seen, I decided I was going to talk about the system issues around this case with the team during the debriefing. Mm-hmm. And in this case, the system issue is, is that these three children were shot. And uh, in my mind, although I didn't bring it up in the debriefing, no one was surprised when these children came in that these children were black. Right. And uh, knowing what I know, and I, I've been reading more about this, is that children who are black are uh, exponentially more likely to be shot. Oh, yeah. And shot and killed uh, versus children who are not black. Right. And so uh, there is a systemic issue here, which is gun violence and ethnicity and or race in this case. Right. And the idea that we're seeing uh, violence that continues to grow. Spiral. And we continue epidemiologically to see an increase in the number of deaths in children in the U.S. And it, and it, is, it has grown over the last couple of years 
uh, partly due to COVID and some other factors that are are not well, well understood. Right. And in reflection on this case, I really thought about my own white privilege. And I thought about the fact that my child, who is white as well, is now in college and was not shot when he was 18. And it's something that's not on my, on my mind. Mm-hmm. Now, I wrote an essay about this and I got published. This got published, but something pretty remarkable happened around writing this essay. And I haven't shared this with many people. And that is, is that I was writing this essay and I had written a manuscript and I had sent about this case and I had uh, sent it to a colleague. And one of the print versions before it got published was uh, left in the emergency department. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the uh, medical assistants who happens to be black picked it up and read it. Oh, wow. And uh, she, she came to me and said, did you write this? And I said, I did. And she started to cry and she came over and gave me a hug. That's very affirmative. And, and, and I started crying too. And, right. and I didn't know why she was crying because this was so, I was still reeling from this in some ways. Because as doctors, this affects us, right? Oh, yes. Every time. It affects us short and, and long-term. Yep. And so I said, what's going on? And she said something to me that was really eye-opening. And she said, uh, Dr. Spiro, as a black woman and a mother, it is, it is something that I've thought about since my baby was born that one day he may get shot. <sighs> and that's, that's, that's a sad testament to our country, to be honest with you. And that's it's reality every day. I mean, not not for me. I, I I it never enters my mind. What enters my mind is where am I where are my kids going to go to college and why aren't they in why why didn't they get more scholarships? But yeah. for some people, it's it's survival and it's it's not good. I guess my journey through all of this is you know we went through the murder of George Floyd and um, awareness on a national level around police brutality. And uh, specifically around Black people. And this event really made me think about my own white privilege and how sure. we and I need to be sensitive about this and be thinking about what we can all be doing in our own ways to uh, improve the systemic racism that exists and uh, it exists in, um, in healthcare. After this event, I had another experience where it was relatively quiet and uh, not busy in the ER, and then it became very busy. And one of the nurses came to me and said, uh, well, the bus, the bus just rolled up to the hospital, right? Oh. And uh, I've heard the saying hundreds of times, and everyone kind of rolls their eyes when uh, someone says it. Like, oh, yeah, the bus just showed up. And it's actually a racist thing to say. Is it? Yeah. It is. I just assumed the bus coming means a whole lot of people just showed up and the bus can hold a whole lot of people, but it's not. It, it turns out that uh, you're more likely, if you're black, to be uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged. Oh, okay. And you're more likely to be black than white to ride a bus, to come to the emergency department. Ride a bus. Gotcha. And it can be construed as a racist comment. You know, that's one of the nice things about being kind of outpatient clinical is our clinic is kind of small. So, you know, we never even think about a bus. Most of the time, patients come to see us either in, you know, their own transportation or walking. 
Yeah. So I think, I think what, where I'm at in my evolution is, is that, and I said something to that nurse that said that I said, you know, I think that could be construed as a racist comment. Oh. And what the response was of the nurse was, thank you for letting me know that. I really, and I said it in a gentle way. I didn't, uh, you know, wasn't aggressive about it. I pulled the nurse aside. It didn't humiliate her. And so I think in healthcare, it's incumbent upon ourselves to, just like we report children who may be abused, we're mandatory reporters. I think we need to be better at policing ourselves in healthcare. And when we hear racist comments or what could be construed as racist comments, I think it's time in the evolution of healthcare for us to be able to feel comfortable talking to our colleagues about it. I think that's, I think you're absolutely right. I wonder, what do you think the effect would be that if we documented evidence of racism, even outside of our clinics, meaning you had these three young men who presented um, more than likely not in small order because of their ethnicity and race. Is there a body of a governing body, whether within or without our institutions, that should know the volume that we see that would do something with that type of data? Like, oh, so this today we had six Hispanic and 12 African-American and one Caucasian show up with a gunshot wound. And this is what we're seeing as a trend. And this is perhaps something that we can give to our community to say, you know, violence, I mean, you know, and where we live, violence is a problem and should be addressed, but is not being addressed quickly enough. But that may be good data to bring to a community association meeting or a you know, larger body. That would be helpful. I think so. And I think that there are uh, ways to speak up in the community. There are also ways to be doing things every day. Yeah. There should be no tolerance for racism yeah. in, in the healthcare environment. And you say, you say it like that, and I agree with it completely, but you have to have some guts and some bravado to stand up to it. Even in, even in our positions, David, you and I, who are chiefs in our, in our institutions, you have to have some guts to say to some nurse or a physician or a nurse practitioner or you know, senior vice chair or whoever, hey, that was a racist remark. I mean, I, I don't appreciate that. Or, hey, that was discriminatory and I don't appreciate that because there could be some backfire to that, some backlash. Yeah. I think you. D- it sounds like you did the exact right thing with a nurse. You know, you took her aside and said, hey, you know, that's not, that's not appropriate. Don't like that. That makes me feel uncomfortable or whatever you said. And, and, but, you know, what if it's, you know, a community, a meeting, you know, we have a big meeting, you know, several, you know, 50, 60 people there and you hear something that isn't quite right said by the uh, by a person next to you i mean you you have to have some guts to do it yeah i think i think so and i think for me not only the level of consciousness that we had with the events nationally george floyd etc gave me some level of consciousness this particular event really hit me hard on so many different levels of course and has given really was the trigger for me through case-based learning to really have a different level of awareness. So I think the first step mm-hmm. is is recognizing that the problem exists and being aware of the problem. Right. And then the next step is perhaps doing something about it and 
in any way that that one can. Yeah. And so I know at one at one other institution uh, where I used to work at at Oregon Health and Science University, there's actually training that's happening there for healthcare workers to give them skills to make them comfortable talking to colleagues when they hear something that could be construed as racist or discriminatory. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a great idea. And I think we all need to be, I think we all need to be trained in ways to communicate to anyone in healthcare when we see something that is not okay to be able to talk about it. And we should feel comfortable to be able to talk about it. Like I tell the learners, medical students, residents, when I work with them, that the, I think one of the most important aspects of outstanding healthcare is bi-directional communication and being mm-hmm. open and honest and having open ways to talk. And this is one of them. Right. And so getting back to this mother, she's my hero because she was, and even if she didn't, she was my hero, but she inspired me by the way she composed herself, was able to talk about her children and uh, be strong for them in the face of insurmountable grief Mm. and loss. Part of the reason why I love what I do in pediatric emergency medicine is that I really love to see those heroes every day that I work because we see it all the time. And I'm sure you see it in in your world of uh, pediatric endocrinology. Oh, yeah. I think in in smaller ways, of course. I mean, on a daily basis, we see families that step up to the, you know, the, the needs of their chronic care children and and really do well with that. So yeah, there are some families in in there that you're just really impressed with, and you're like, wow, if this were my kid, I would I would not be that. I would I, I would hope I would be that, uh, but I have this feeling in the in the pit of my stomach that I I would be, not be that good. So the other reason why this woman is my hero is she gave me the courage and the inspiration to speak up and to be more of an advocate when I see mm-hmm. when I see discrimination in the environment that we work in. Your story's great. I love that story. You've told it to me so many times. And I, I still I just it just I don't know what I would do if I were in that in that particular instance. I will say that I have to be proud of my children. Uh, because you say that there's this, you know, we should be advocates. There should be no discrimination. There should be no racism. All three of my kids, for some reason or another, and and my wife and I both try to be uh, open people and teach them not to be that way. They are they they have been staunch advocates for everybody, and they've got really open minds. And they don't have any shyness when when my wife or I say something that really, even if it's kind of off the cuff and as a joke, and they say, you know. Guys, that just that's uncomfortable. You shouldn't say things like that. So I have to say, just on record, that I am proud of my kids that they do that, and I think every kid should do that. And and I'm I'm happy that this generation is really starting to take take a keen interest in uh, a non discriminatory pattern. The other thing I wanted to bring up, and it, it's a little bit off the path from what you were describing, but I think this podcast, this this topic, and hopefully many topics to come illustrates what an emergency room physician does and perhaps brings down some of the anxiety of, of future trainees. Because, you know, I, I can guarantee you that there are many medical students out there that, or residents out there that would have gone into or would go into emergency medicine because it is an honorable field and it's a critical field, but they're too scared 
of the story that you just you just described. Hmm. They're too scared of the trauma kids and the sick kids. You described it in such a calm and organized way that I think it should comfort the trainees that we we that should listen to this and should learn that there are ways of taking care of these critically ill children, critically injured children. Um, and then that, that there are positive outcomes to that. Yeah. Um, so I applaud you for that, that story for many reasons. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You know, the reason why I still love what I do is I love what I do because I'm interfacing with the community. I see very sick and I see not so sick, but I have an opportunity almost every shift to, to reach out to a human being, another fellow soul, and um, let them know they're my hero. Yeah. Last night I saw a mother taking care of a very sick child with sickle cell disease, and she was the auntie, mm-hmm. but acting as the mother, a very difficult situation. And I let her know she's my hero because she's taking uh, her time and energy to care for her right. uh, niece out of the kindness of her heart, uh, who's sick. Mm-hmm. And so we see all these things every day. And then I, I love emergency medicine because every day I show up, it's something different. It's not boring. Yeah. Even in the outpatient world, there are some times where a physician can kind of go their separate ways and say, hey, we've taken care of your prescriptions. Hey, we've taken care of your labs and we've talked to you and everything looks great. But there are these instances that really bring me joy where a family needs something, but it's not really within my purview to offer it to them or provide it to them. Uh, you know, antibiotic for an ear infection a cream for some dry skin, uh, signing up um, a document that gets them, you know, some added hours off from work. I love doing those things. Um, it, it saves time, it saves money, but those, those families are really appreciative of it. So I think that's, that's what brings me a lot of joy. Yeah. You know what brings me a lot of joy? Because a lot of times I have trainees working under me that understand what's going on and they get the diagnosis and I'm walking in and I don't feel like I'm doing much. So, uh, but Maybe the most important thing I do during a shift is bring a child a popsicle. Ah, it's true. And the reason, or a sticker, and or. All right. Because sometimes if they're very special, they get a popsicle and a sticker. Oh, wow. Like candy popsicle or like a frozen popsicle? The frozen popsicle. I don't give candy, but it's you know, sugar water, whatever. But the, but the, <laughs> it's good yeah. for rehydration when you're vomiting, or whatever. But the reason why I bring a popsicle is I want parents to know that I care. I really like to do it. And also, it's important because the nurses see that I'm doing things that anyone can do. Yeah. And it's not just a nurse responsibility to bring a child a popsicle, but I can go to the freezer and go get it and bring it to them. And um, so we have, yeah, we, we, we give away games and toys and stickers and all that. That's mm-hmm. a lot of fun to see them, especially when the kids kind of open the games up and they start playing the games while, they're, while we're talking to mom and dad. And it's, that's good stuff. All right. Well, why don't we wrap this up? Uh, thank you all for joining. We're going to be having guests moving forward. Yeah. Thank you, David. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Visit memoirsinmedicine.com to learn more about this program, sign up for our newsletter, or leave us a voicemail. That's memoirsinmedicine.com. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or in other major podcasting apps, so you can have episodes delivered to you automatically on the day they're released. Till next time.